Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 160. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're honored to have with us the internationally acclaimed comic consultant, writer, and illustrator, G.E. Gallus. Hi, Thank thanks you, for having Jerry. me. So I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you, Jerry, because you have put out some amazing historically influenced and inspired graphic novels along mm -hmm. with chocolate. We need to talk about the chocolate piece. That sounds exciting. <laughs> Plus some of your, your, your pins, you expand. Too much <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and I, I know first you, you went to school and you went to school in, uh, you're from Washington, went to school in, <laughs> yeah, you went to school in New York. You also traveled mm -hmm. and you actually studied in Japan. <laughs> but so before we jump into it, Jerry, do you want to kind of give people a little bit of background on how you got into writing and illustrating? Uh, yeah, so um, I've just been writing and drawing for as long as I can remember, like elementary school, I was making also creating all my own characters, trying to make stories to go with those characters. So it's just kind of something I've been doing forever and it's not, I can't seem to stop doing it <laughs> for better or worse. <laughs> um, but the historical stuff came a little bit later. Um, definitely the William Blake, my love for William Blake kind of grew organically and kind of pushed me in the direction of doing more historical, historical fiction based stories which I, I've always been interested in, but I hadn't really delved into it, my, making a historical comic myself until I got into Blake. Hmm. And the the Poet and the Flea, your, your William Blake-inspired graphic novel, which is volume one, and you have three volumes. And mm -hmm. um, I did see an interview that you said that volume two, um, it might be coming out this year. Yeah, I mean, I'm working on new pages. <laughs> um, it, I'm hoping to kind of um, launch around Blake's birthday and death day. So his death day is in August and his birthday is in November. So mm. hopefully that's when new pages will start showing up. <laughs> and, the, and the Poet and the Flea is based off of one of his... As, as you said in, a, in, a, in one of one of your interviews, you said that he had the, you know, William Blake had a very vivid imagination, mm -hmm. and he actually had an, he imagined, or was it a he a vision that he saw of a giant flea, that was inspired mm -hmm. by that. Yeah, I mean, he had all sorts of visions. Mm. Um, he had visions as a child of angels. He was visited by all sorts of ghosts, like Voltaire, who who's in the poet and the flea is one of the ghosts that visits him. And um, the ghost of a flea is one of these Blake paintings. That's just so hard to categorize, hard to explain. I mean, it's this, you think of flea being a flea being like this tiny little insignificant thing, but the ghost of the flea is this scary muscular, muscular, creature that drinks human blood um so a very scary <laughs> a scary mm. flea 
And what made you start? So, and I know that you you actually went to England and mm-hmm. kind of did your own mm-hmm. tour through seeing some Blake esque sites. Yes. Do you yeah. see yourself as as a writer? How important is it to do research on something mm-hmm. and actually go to the physical locations of a place, especially mm-hmm. if you're doing something that's based on um, some historical significance? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, like, you know, I could have done The Poet and the Flea without going to, like, Blake's homes, various homes, and where he was baptized and all these different locations. But I think it's definitely having gone to see these things in person, it certainly enhances my work and especially seeing his works in person because, you know, when something is put on the internet, like it can be a a very high quality image, but it's not necessarily a 100% exact copy of what it is in person. Um, So seeing the works in person is, I think, very important, but also being in the spaces in which Blake lived is really inspiring and fascinating to me. (laughs) And so, as you say, one of the benefits of going to a physical location is that you're then utilizing all five of your senses mm-hmm. in, in a situation mm-hmm. like that. Do you see any challenges of when you're actually sitting down and writing something as a graphic novel? Because then you are, at least through prose, you can use descriptive words. You can use, but as mm-hmm. using a graphic novel, the the challenge and the benefit is you're providing the visual of it. Uh, where do mm-hmm. you see, where did you get the benefit? Where do you see the benefit of, of you to making a graphic novel by doing the physical mm-hmm. research in the physical locations? Mm-hmm. Well, doing the physical research certainly has filled in like certain gaps in my knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. Because I mean, there is a certain, you can never find like a hundred percent of what you want to draw. So you kind of have to figure make educated guests for instance even the idea of william blake having a pocket watch like there's no evidence i've never come across anything that says he had a pocket watch but i do know at that time period it was more common for people to have pocket watches so i just made the educated guess that yeah maybe he had a pocket watch maybe not but i'll just throw it in anyway (laughs) so it's like you kind of have to fill in the gaps and try to i try to do as much historical research as possible to make it as accurate as possible, but I'm also aware it'll never be a hundred percent accurate. <laughs> and so wh- where do you, so that, that's another good point is like, we taking on the role of, of, of doing uh, your William Blake and then plus doing the plague and Dr. Kane uh, graphic novel, how much of those works are, have an educational purpose to it and how much of that are you know, pure, just uh, story driven? Um, For me, I'm a very story driven writer, I suppose you could say. I'm very much into storytelling and making multidimensional characters and having empathetic characters. And like, for me, if a character, a character can be horrible, but they have to have some kind of redeeming quality so that the reader, the audience cares about them. 
Um, so I'm always kind of aware of those aspects and it's kind of, and, and I do, I am making it for people to kind of spark people's curiosity in whatever the subject is, whether it's Blake or plague doctors. Um, but it's definitely not all like a hundred percent for educational purposes or a hundred percent for fun. It's definitely, I want people to be able to get out of it what they want, but also not be, you don't have to have any knowledge of William Blake to enjoy it either. Mm, right. Have you been able to have people become fans of William Blake because of your, because of your graphic novel? I think so. I mean, I do get messages on occasion where people are like, oh, I've never heard of Blake before, but I'm definitely going to check out his work after this. But I get just as many people, if not more, going, oh, I'm a huge Blake fan. This is so cool. So it's, I don't know. There's something very special about people who are into William Blake. They're very, very passionate about it. Right. <laughs> who, who are your biggest, your readers? Is it mostly graphic novelists or is it? Blake fans or I think it's really a smattering of all of those things but I do get a lot of Blake fans who don't necessarily read comics which is great um because I think comics and Blake go like hand in hand together since Blake did illustrate most of his poems so he was really kind of a precursor to a comic book or a graphic novel um, so it just seems like the right medium to express Blake. <laughs> so that's true. Yeah. So do you, I want to talk to you a bit now about um, uh, the plague and Dr. Came. Mm -hmm. That book came out last year, right? 2021. Mm -hmm. uh, the poet and the flea came out in 2015. So mm -hmm. I am going to ask you, First, we're going to talk about uh, first. I want to talk about the plague and Doctor Came, but then I'm going to ask you uh, so much as like a, a preview of of that seven that well that 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 six five or six year in between. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm uh, I'm curious about when Volume Two because I'm, I'm sure you have your your poet and the flea fans that are waiting for Volume Two mm -hmm. to come out. Mm -hmm. So, but first, let's talk about. Um, the Plague and Dr. Came. What inspired you to make this graphic novel? Well, you know, I had, I'm not exactly sure. I don't exactly remember where I first saw a plague doctor, like the mask, the beak mask and the whole costume. Um, but it's kind of an image that kind of just pops out everywhere on the internet. And it's, there's a lot of Plague Doctor fan art. There are characters in various comic books that tend to be more on the supernatural side. Um, and there are people with Plague Doctor tattoos. There are people who cosplay as Plague Doctors. So I, I really got interested in Plague Doctors because I wanted to kind of strip it back, strip away the supernatural element and get at the history of the Plague Doctor. Um, which I don't think really had been done, at least the way that I've done it, <laughs> um, and kind of get to the real reality of the Plague Doctor's daily life. How long does it take you to write and illustrate a 100-page graphic novel? I'm not a particularly fast <laughs> writer-illustrator, but, you know, 
and it's hard to say because I de I developed these things over long periods of time. Like I think I really started developing the Plague and Doctor came back in 2016. And it didn't take me too long to write it. And, you know, because I was working this time for a publisher, um, I, you know, had to kind of be on a schedule to get it done. So I was had like this goal of at least doing about five pages every week, more or less. And that seemed to work out okay for me. I mean, it's each page has many, many steps to it from like right. penciling, inking, you know, scanning it, coloring it, putting the words on it. So there are a million different steps to one page. So it's kind of difficult to kind of say, oh, I spend this many hours on one page, but it's many hours. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let me ask you, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious about, about this part as a writer and illustrator, mm -hmm. you have the benefit of illustrating your own writing, mm -hmm. but also as other writers and illustrators, the disadvantage of finding the right time to bring the editor in. When do you bring an editor in a proofreader mm -hmm. in uh, for your, for mm -hmm. your books? Um, it's interesting because I would say that when I write, I'm very, specific with my words and I kind of take the time to kind of perfect each sentence as I go along which I think is kind of unusual I think a lot of people just kind of get all the words out and then edit it severely mm. um so I really only had like I usually have my mom who's my best editor take a look at it <laughs> um and other than that like I sent it to my publisher Lizzie K of Cast Iron Books and she didn't change anything which I was really surprised about surprised and delighted about <laughs> so I think that because I kind of edit it so heavily while I write each sentence it doesn't really get heavily edited at the end okay and so talk to us a bit about your style of your process of mm -hmm. of creating the image um mm -hmm. remember you said in a previous interview you cut you drew it out mm -hmm. then scanned it in and then with mm -hmm. photoshop you put in some color is that what you did yeah so um for the plague and doctor came I mean, there's so many steps to my whole process. After I write the script, mm. um, I usually do thumbnail sketches. So I plan out every page. Like Dr. Came okay. is a more simple thing for me because I knew that I wanted four panels on each page. When you look at Poet and the Flea, it has, you know, not a uniform page format. So, right. it, you know, I knew from the beginning I was going to have four panels on each page of Dr. Kame. Um, so then it was kind of just taking the, so I, t I look at my thumbnail sketches, I figure out how they all fit in the bot each panel. And I'm really conscious about negative space as much as positive space. Um, mm. And also making sure there's enough room for the words. <laughs> That's always <laughs> important. Um, and so, and so I basically, um, um, do the pencil and then I ink everything and then I scan that into the computer and I 
go into Photoshop and I color it in. Um, and, and for Dr. Cam, I had these watercolor textures that I scanned in and used. Um, and then I go into InDesign and add all the words and format it all to be printed and send that to my publisher. So, <laughs> so needless to say, there is, so you, you utilize a lot of multi multimedia situations and with them mm -hmm. digital and have you, how much has, has your style evolved over the last few years? Have you been able to take some things that you used to do digitally, then actually made them in then a more analog or vice versa? Have you taken mm -hmm. things that were analog that you've decided to do digitally now? Well, it really just depends on what the feel and look that I'm going for, for, because I think each product I work on has a very different tone, even though it's my same illustration style. So mm. with the poet and the flea, I do everything by hand other than scanning it. I, I write all the words by hands when doctor came, it's like a digital font right. um, with the poet and the flea, I ink it. And then I'm, I'm shading it all in grayscale marker and then I don't really have to do much once it's scanned. It's pretty much done when it's scanned. Wow, <laughs> as long right. as it's a high quality scan, because I've had problems where I didn't, I think I went to like Staples or something like that and got it scanned and that was a nightmare. So then I had to get it rescanned by a better company. <laughs> so <laughs> and, and you and like you and you brought it up is for instance, how was it easier for you to, as you said, with um, with the plague and Doctor Came, that you knew you're going to have the four panels on each page? Mm -hmm. Did that make it easier from a graphic design perspective, or harder for you as compared to the poet and the flea? I think it was easier because I didn't have to figure out the pacing. Like the thing with me and panels, and especially in the poet and the flea, is that the panels kind of dictate how the human eye travels across the page and therefore dictates the pacing of the story. So Dr. Came having just four panels on every page was super easy for me. <laughs> Talk to us a bit about as well from a, from a graphic design and uh, perspective is how deliberate are you, and I know you mentioned in a previous interview that you're able to do some, the ink dropper to mm -hmm. kind of get uh, the color of the paper down. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the other inspirations you got for your palette for, uh, for the plague in Dr. Came? Yeah. Um, with Dr. Came, um, it was kind of fun to, a de fun departure from the poet and the flea, which I chose to do in black and white to do a full color graphic novel. Um, mm. And I basically start started out with the idea that I wanted it to be kind of on this, the back, all the background was, was to look like parchment paper, like old paper. And right. so that kind of dictated the rest of the colors, like what colors are going to go well on this one color. Um, and also it was like a thought process for me to, to figure out like, am I going to make the background color myself or am I going to choose a certain type of paper that'll, so it ended up being that I made my own watercolor texture to create that parchment feel. Um, but yeah, as you were saying, I took 
um, like, so I was very inspired by illuminated manuscripts throughout the ages. You know, they're, they're all these really cool. I think I went to like um, Wikimedia and got all these cool illuminated manuscripts from various time periods and various <laughs> countries. And I took that eyedropper and I kind of to, to capture the colors that they were using and to give it that old school illuminated manuscript feel to it. But I also wanted to make sure that it was kind of a limited color palette. So I did reuse a lot of the same colors over and over again. Right. And what that was deliberate that you wanted mm -hmm. to have just three or four colors. Yeah, I mean, I think I had more than three or four, but I also didn't want to have like a hundred different colors. So. <laughs> <laughs> and was that kind of an inspiration through, as you mentioned, like illuminated manuscripts is like that, that style of illustration? Yeah, I mean, with the illuminated manuscripts, I mean, they can be hundreds of years old. So they had kind of a limited color palette, whatever pigments those monks had to work with. Um, and so there are a lot of like kind of bold bold colors and very specific colors. And so I didn't want anything to seem out of place in that color palette. Right. I want to talk now about your open book chocolates. Mm -hmm. Where, how long have you had your, 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 your chocolate business? Um, I think I started it in 2017. Really? Okay. Mm -hmm. So this was in between both graphic novels, basically. Yeah, basically. Yes. <laughs> so when you, <laughs> so you have, you have people waiting for volume two of the poet and the flea and then they see you start making chocolate. Did you scare any of your fans or your readers? Like, is she not going to make volume two? All of a sudden she's selling chocolate. No one, no one has said anything. So I, I don't <laughs> know exactly, but, um, you know, the thing is, is that for a long time now, I've had the scripts, basically the scripts for volume two and volume three of The Poet and the Flea have been done for a long time now. And so it's mm. really just been, and as well as all the thumbnail sketches are done for volumes two and three. So now right. it's just a matter of me sitting down and drawing the damn pages. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I, I hope, well, and then, you know, my publisher really wanted me to do Dr. Kame. So I kind of had to put Poet and the Flea on the back burner again. Okay. Um, but now I'm finally getting back to volume two. So I'm excited for, I hope fans are excited for volume two. <laughs> right. So uh, talk to us about the inspiration. Was that just you sitting in, you know, on a porch someday and one day and decided I'm going to start making chocolate based off and having the flavors based off of famous works of literature. Yeah. Well, I guess it's kind of been a, a process for me. I um, kind of got interested in doing kind of desserts or, you know, something sweet. Like I worked for a while part-time at nothing but cakes, which is a chain, a, a franchise where they make, bunt cakes um and so it was kind of like me trying to figure out well how can i do something on my own um and something that like i f i wanted to make a small business and i wanted it to be something that would 
never go out of style because like chocolate <laughs> just doesn't go out of style, right? right? And but I also I'd never seen a chocolate business that had a theme before. Like I've seen like a lot of chocolate businesses are like fair trade, which is great, or you know, handmade, organic, all of this kind of stuff, vegan, which is all great. But right. I wanted to have like a real theme to it. And I just love classic literature. And I thought it would be really fun to come up with flavors based on those books. And it's These worked are... so far. <laughs> Has this, so how, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, obviously we can see the the link between the literature, your work and, and, and the chocolates because your chocolates are made mm -hmm. out of, um, as you say, made out of the famous, famous works of literature. Uh, how much does this take up your time from, from writing and illustrating? Well, it's interesting because, you know, and I'm kind of have to remind myself every year that there is kind of a lull with the chocolate. I would say my busiest time of year for chocolate is September through December well, actually okay. September through February because of Valentine's Day. And then there's kind of this lull during the hot months because no one wants to eat or buy chocolate. Like your face <laughs> melts. So I just have this like chunk of time where I'm like, what, what my business? But it's like, okay, I have to remember this happens every year. And that's when I can go back to working on my comic oh, books. Wow. <laughs> so what is your... What, what, what's your what, what's which ones are you like do you have a surprising bestseller selling chocolate well pride and prejudice is definitely a bestseller just because people are obsessed with that book like i get people going i've read it a hundred times and i'm like oh my god calm down but um <laughs> that's a big seller sherlock holmes is definitely a big seller which is surprising because a lot of people have like something against white chocolate i happen to be a white chocolate fan right. um so it's always shocking when i'm like wait i don't i'm running out of sherlock holmes what's going on um and then even definitely call of cthulhu has been very popular too which has been great because it's kind of a weird flavor to have nori seaweed and ginger spice and candy ginger and dark chocolate but it right. just people love cthulhu people love Cthulhu means weird, I think. So, you know, people associate weirdness with Cthulhu. So it was okay to have a kind of weird, unexpected flavor with that. Right. I, I've been trying to keep my flavors like relatively low, the amount of flavors mm. that I have. And I keep thinking, oh, well, this flavor doesn't sell as well. So maybe I should retire it. But then all of a sudden I'll get an influx of people who want that flavor. Um, so it's like, I've been trying to kind of limit it to like maybe one new flavor every year, but then it's like, well, which one am I going to retire? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have to kind of have your own little, have you retired any flavors yet? Not yet, but I think Jane Eyre might be on the choppy block, unfortunately. Oh, really? oh, actually, we did retire. I did retire Monte Cristo, but that was more of, well, there were a few issues with Monte Cristo, and I'd love to bring Monte Cristo back. Um, but Monte Cristo was Muscat raisins and dark chocolate. And the problem with that was just finding the muscat raisins for okay. one, because most muscat raisins have seeds in it, which aren't great with like chocolate and then like having these weird crunchy seeds in it. 
And also a lot of people misread it as like muskrat. And so it turned people off or like people just hate raisins, even though I have like other dried fruits, something about raisins that really like, you know, people get really mad about raisins (laughs) for some reason. So I'd love to bring Monte Cristo back because it's one of my favorite books, but I'm just, I have to think, uh, I might have to reread it and it is a thousand pages long, but I kind of have to come up with a new flavor idea for it. How do you come up with the flavors? Is it, you have some friends that you kind of banter about, or is this something that's kind of your solo by yourself you you think about it (laughs) well all of my friends and family like to give me ideas but (laughs) I'm usually the one I usually come up with the idea myself and then I have like my mom and dad might be my taste testers because I'll have like a few different variations of the same flavor to figure out which is the best like for instance with um I want to say oh yeah with with for instance treasure island it was which is rum and coconut and dark chocolate it was like what kind of coconut are we gonna do and so we kind of ended up with multiple types of coconut on that bar because <laughs> that was the best texture so it there's definitely like a trial and error like a you know taste t- taste testing the different flavors um but i usually end up reading or mostly rereading the book and kind of looking for what would be a good flavor and sometimes some of these books don't mention any food like pride and prejudice really doesn't mention that much food in it so it was kind of just like what they ate at the time period and what flavor kind of reflects the characters personalities so do you have any uh could you do say, you know, more flavors to come is, are you, do you have some other ones that you're thinking? Yes, of? I have um, a few that I'm kind of thinking of. I do want to do, I'm hoping to do a Kickstarter later this year, like before the winter holidays for the new flavor. And um, I actually right. sent out a survey to my customers to see what books they'd be interested in. So it's kind of, between Dorian Gray, Frankenstein, and maybe Kafka's Metamorphosis. And also um, Scarlet Pimpernel got quite a few votes. So I have a few different ideas to play with there. <laughs> wow, that's, that's, this, is, this is amazing. And people can buy that. They can come to, to uh, gegallus.com and just mm-hmm. order all the mm-hmm. chocolate, the, any chocolate they want, right? Yes, exactly. Or you can go to openbookchocolates.com. Okay. <laughs> yep, openbookchocolates.com. So. <laughs> right. Well, and like part of the fun for me too is to come up with, I do all the graphic design myself. So I have fun making all these wrappers, designing the wrappers, um, finding the illustrations that are going to go, you know, all the things that I do for Open Book Chocolates are in the public domain. Um, so I know I get a lot of people asking me to do like Harry Potter or Game of Thrones. I'm like, I really don't want to get in trouble. So (laughs) I I stay in the public domain for this one. (laughs) Right. And right now you do have a, you do have a limited time, uh, for the, the old, old Mm -hmm. rapper sale. So Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, we have a so, few things left. It's they're mostly gone, but a few. If you want to get a good deal on some tasty chocolate, there are a few left. <laughs> that's amazing. So the the Sherlock Holmes was really intriguing me because we were just talking before we went on the air. We were talking about uh, tea. So mm-hmm. Earl Grey honey and white yeah. chocolate. That does sound. Yeah, amazing. I do use a lot of tea in my chocolate. I have um, also the a little princess's chai and milk chocolate, and I have. Tale of Genji, which is matcha in white chocolate, which is a beautiful green bar. <laughs> but so that I, I am curious about that is because obviously chocolate does have caffeine in it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Chocolate mm-hmm. itself does. So there must so they so these are caff so this isn't the kind of tea you want to eat late at night. I mean tea, this isn't <laughs> I mean, I don't know that you want to eat any chocolate late at night, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I mean, there might be more caffeine in my chocolate, but it's also less calories than like a Hershey bar. So, you know, pros and cons. (laughs) Right. Exactly. That's amazing. So... Now I, I want to kind of talk a bit about your, you have your own press, correct? The, um, mm-hmm. the Radiant Pessimist Press. Mm-hmm. Is this, is this the, is this basically your, this is the press when you make, when you independently publish books, this is what you utilize? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I use it to self-publish like poet and the flea or you know when i make my own zines or other books um i would like to in the future possibly publish other artists as well but that's kind of like a long-term future goal for me (laughs) i was going to ask you about that if that if this would this be uh yeah would this be a press that you would look to the future that you would have other artists and and Possibly, hypothetically speaking, what would be the types of books that you would put under Radiant Pessimist mm-hmm. Press? Well, there are a few projects that I would love to do, like with possibly me adapting um, a piece of classic literature into a script and have a fellow artist illustrate it for me. <laughs> That's like kind of my fantasy. Um, and there are a bunch of different kind of more some more famous, some more obscure pieces of classic literature, I think that would be so perfect for a graphic novel. Um, so, but I'd also love to publish, like there's so many great web comics out there that really deserve to be put into print. So, Hmm. you know, there are, um, a lot of people that I follow online and read their web comics. So (laughs) I'd love to see them in print and if I could help them get them, into print, then that would be wonderful. <laughs> which, which then brings me up to the question about your your other hat that you wear, which is like you got you're doing all kinds of stuff. You're, the uh, many things, <laughs> many many things. Your comic book consultant work. Oh yes, yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, um, it's just you know throughout the years I've gotten so many people asking me for advice, so I just thought this was an this is a more recent thing I started because, you know, I get people asking me all sorts of questions about how do I write a comic? How do I publish a comic? How do I, you know, submit to literary agents or to publishers? 
Um, and so this is kind of just me saying, hey, I can help you, but like also my time is valuable. <laughs> so, but like I love helping people and um, I do actually to, I, I should really put it on here, add it to my website. Um, but I do have a series of, I think I made like 20 or so YouTube videos about like answering people's questions about making comics. So that's totally free for people to check that out. I'll have to mm -hmm. add that to this website. But um, yeah, I just love helping people. And I know it's not something you can really learn um, in school. Like you really have to just kind of figure it out on your own. And that can be very, very difficult. So I feel like I have all this knowledge that I can then pass on to younger generation or even just anybody trying to make a comic. Right. And do you, so what's your opinion on where you stand? Cause you've done, you've worked with publishers and you've also independently published things. Mm -hmm. um, what would be your advice for folks that are watching or listening who are working on their own comic? Mm -hmm. um, and they say, should I look for a literary agent on this or should I just self publish? What would be at first blush? What would be your <laughs> advice on something like that? It really depends on what you want, what you're making, like what genre, what age group. Like I've had absolutely no luck finding a literary agent for my own work. And that's because right now, literary agents and very big traditional publishers are really only interested in young adult and middle grade graphic novels. So if that's what you're working on, then I would say look for, find a lit agent, query lit agents. But if that's not what you're working on, because my stuff is really more for an adult audience. Like even though kids do read my comics and I get a lot of wonderful comments like, oh, my seven-year-old loves this. But because it's not considered by lit agents and publishers as a children's graphic novel, right. um, they really have no interest in it. Um, as well as just the fact that, like, for some reason, lit agents and publishers, traditional publishers, tend to think of adult graphic novels as either memoirs or, you know, they really aren't interested in anything other than memoirs. In, in the adult section of graphic novels. And that's also not what I do. Um, so yeah, I would say like, if you're not in the young adult middle grade area of graphic novel making, then probably skip the lit agents and look for like smaller publishers. Like definitely my publisher, Cast Iron Books is just like one person and she kickstarts, she does Kickstarter to publish all of her books. Um, and like, if you can't find a small publisher, then consider doing web, a web comic or doing your self publishing. And that could be like setting up a Kickstarter for people to pre-order your book. Um, so there are very many different ways to go about doing it. It's just like the limitation of what, you know, lit agents and publishers are looking for these days, unfortunately. And where do you see... Um, we are now in, I like to consider this time as, as of this recording, we're in pre post pandemic mm -hmm. world, right? Where we're just, we're, we're so close. We're right there. Yeah. Um, any insights that, that independent comic creators have maybe have gained from, from this? Mm -hmm. That's an interesting 
interesting question. Like, I think that I hope that what people gained from the pandemic was time to work on their comics, because it's not like you can go out and do things in, in during the pandemic. Um, but, you know, now that things are kind of starting to open back up, I think that, you know, there are more um, conventions that are going to happen, come back. Um, I know that Small Press Expo is supposed to happen this year, which is a great pretty big, small press event. Um, and yeah, so, and there are all sorts of things like small press expo. There's like cake in Chicago and mice in Massachusetts. And I'm a big believer in, in zine fests. I think zines are great for comic book people and for people doing other sorts of creative things, whether it's play photography, whatever it is. Um, so I'm hoping that a bunch of these zine fests are going to co start coming back too. So I think that's kind of where, you know, these in-person events is something that we've been missing for the past few years. And it's nice to kind of start getting back into the groove of that. And you mentioned zines and, uh, you know, real quick for some of our audience members that might not be familiar with that term. What are zines? Mm -hmm. um, so a zine is basically just a self-published book or booklet. It's kind of no like short for magazine. And, you know, the traditional idea of a zine is just something printed on like a Xerox copying machine and stapled together. And it can really, what I love about zines is it can be anything that you want it to be. It can be like a short story. It can be illustrations. It can be, you know, a, a short comic. It can be whatever. It can be collage. It can be whatever you want. So I find it really fun to go to a zine fest. Like when, when I go to a comic book fest, I get a little annoyed when things are like when people are selling fan art, that's just me. I'm not like a fan art person. Um, so I love going to zine fest because people are making like original things, whatever that is. So I'm, right. I, I think Zine Fest is a great place to find those original pieces of art. So, and I'm, and I'm curious about this is it almost seems like there's seem, there seems to be a resurgence of zines. Mm -hmm. Zines were huge in the nineties and now mm -hmm. they just seem to be a resurgence to it. Do you think, do you see the resurgence is based off of the audience and the readers not wanting to have everything all digital or do mm -hmm. you see it as a response to the advent of, of Kickstarter, making it so much more accessible for people to start self-publishing? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. I think that like, you know, humans like making physical things. And so a zine is a great inexpensive way to make a physical thing and then sell that thing for not a lot of money. So like, I would say like an expensive zine would be $5. So, you know, it's, it's fun to like go into a zine fest and like, you know, just like take a bunch of dollar bills and, you know, get all this stuff you would never be able to find online. Uh, right. So it's also kind of fulfilling, you know, we, I think a lot of people miss going into a bookstore, or going into a record store and like discovering something. So that's kind of what a zine fest is, you know, it's similar in that you can find something you would never find online. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. So if people want to learn more about it, what's the best way for people to follow you? Um, I'm most active on Twitter, which is just at GE Gallus. 
um, with no periods or anything. It's one word. Um, and, you know, all my stuff is at um, www.gegals.com. So everything is, I have all my links there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you also got the link tree going yes, on. Yes, I have link tree too. I think that's just linktree.com slash gegals probably. <laughs> So if people want to learn, if people want to buy your chocolate, if people want to learn more about your, your comic book consulting work, mm -hmm. if people want to read more of your work, that would, so you say gegallus.com would be the, the perfect mm -hmm. spot for that. That's like the home page, the home, the main hub of all my stuff. That's right. <laughs> Good. Well, this has been, uh, this has been fantastic. I'm so happy that we we're able to connect. Jerry, it's yes. been, uh, um, and you come back on when uh, volume two of The Poet and the Flea comes out. Okay, sounds good. I had a lot of fun. It's wonderful that, you know, all your questions were fun to answer. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs>